If you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we will read, beginning in verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, please. Father, as we come to this passage, there is so much here. But we pray that you would guide us to those things that you would have us to hear today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. The old movie, Chariots of Fire, I hope most of you know that movie. Many of you have seen it. Probably those of you who are younger, your parents made you watch it and said, this is a really good movie. Well, it is. It's an interesting movie in a lot of ways because it basically tells the story of two runners in the 1924 Olympics. Harold Abrams on the one hand and Eric Little on the other. Both of them sprinters, both of them gifted, both of them world-class athletes. And you have this setup in the movie in which it looks as if these two men are going to have to run against each other 
in the Olympics. Well, spoiler alert, they don't have to run against each other. They both win. They're races. But you see, the movie is really not about the Olympics. And this is astounding to me as I've thought about this. The movie is about another race because the movie begins with the funeral of Harold Abrams, a man who lived his life, became well-known, famous, well-regarded. He was the dean of English sports. And at his funeral, all the people, everyone who was anyone, was there. But then you have the contrast with Eric Little, who at the very last, you just have the words that come up on the screen. Eric Little died in a Japanese internment camp in China during World War II. And the question the movie asks is this, who really won? And you see, the answer to that depends on your perspective. It really does. It depends on what you consider to be important. That's sort of the issue that Paul's addressing in our passage this morning. Because Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and I'm assuming that you have some background in this. Paul's, um, Paul's relationship with the Corinthians, shall we say, was rocky. Uh, he had to rebuke them a lot of times. They, at times, were not very happy with him. This is his second letter, at least, to them. And in this letter, we discover that what's happened is other people have come to the church, people who claim to be apostles, people who are outwardly appear to be very, very impressive, much more so than Paul. And these people have spoken about Paul and they've said, you know, this guy, this Paul, he's a nut. He, he's mad. The text says he's beside himself, which is a, it's a, just a wonderful picture, isn't it? Uh, you're out of your mind. You're beside yourself. And so... Paul is writing them and he's saying, I'm trying to give you something to boast about me. Since I started the church and I know you want to protect me, you want to defend me, he's writing about the fact that he is living a life that most people, even Christians, don't understand. Why? Well, it depends on your perspective. You see, God has always called us to be countercultural. That's why we read Abraham. You probably wondered, what, what's the connection? All right, Abraham the city dweller, all right? Ur of the Chaldees was one of the major cities of the ancient world. God calls him to leave his city life and become a nomadic tent dweller. Or Moses, prince of Egypt, who becomes a leader of slaves. David, 
the anointed king of Israel who's running in the wilderness for his life. Even Jesus, during this season of our celebration, the king of kings riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Countercultural. Not what we, not what the world expects. And God calls us to live our lives in that way. Now, I have to say right at the outset, we can't do that. We don't want to do that many times. It is the grace of God that both enables us and, if you will, compels us to live counterculturally. So let me talk about three things from this passage. I want to focus on verses 14 and 15. And I want to talk, first of all, about a principle. Because Paul explains himself here. You know, Paul is a very logical man. He's trained as a lawyer. That's what essentially Pharisees were, is they were biblical lawyers. So he's very logical. He talks about a principle. Then he talks about a purpose. And then I want to come back and circle around and talk about a prisoner. So let's look first at the principle. Paul says, we have concluded this. It's a very logical statement. We have concluded this. He's sharing with the Corinthians why he lives the way he lives, why he goes through shipwrecks and beatings and deprivations of all kinds. Why does he do that, Paul? Why are you so crazy? He says, well, let me tell you, we have concluded this. There's a conclusion, and it points back to the gospel. He says, here's the idea. One died for all. Now, there's, there's a background to this that we have to understand. What Paul is talking about is, he is referring, without actually mentioning it, he's referring to the concept that all of humanity died in Adam because when Adam died, we died. When Adam sinned, we died. We sinned. Adam was our representative. He acted on our behalf, and he messed it up. As would every one of us, had we been in the same position. <laughs> but that's the background. And so Paul says, if you understand that, then for me to say this, you get it. One died for all. Christ also acted on our behalf. Now, the interesting thing is, for Paul, this is a principle. It's not just a truism. It is something that has a logical outworking in the way he lived his life. One died for all, therefore all died. In the same way that when Adam sinned, we sinned. When Christ died, we died. Now, let me just say this. If you died, that changes everything. Right? 
if you're dead, it changes your whole perspective on life, or at least it ought to. And so Paul lays this out, and he's speaking here, and I'd love to just, you know, spend the next hour talking about substitutionary atonement. I don't have the time for that, but what a wonder that out of love for us, the Son of God would die. He gave himself. He gave his life for you. That's the principle. And because he did that, when he died, being unified with him, you died also. All right? So it may not feel like it. For most of us, we don't feel dead at this point. We may feel like we're mostly dead. (sighs) Yes, brief mention of another movie there. Um, But we are. We're dead. And so that changes the direction that we consider and how we look at our life. Now, it changes or ought to change our motivations. And so Paul goes on and he begins to talk about purpose. And here's where we get a little interactive, okay? And I'm just gonna ask you a question. No, you don't have to raise your hand and you don't have to stand up and answer. But I want you to answer this question. Kids, think about this too, all right? The question is a very easy one for church. Put your Bible hat on. Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? Well, we have several good answers to that. Jesus died so my sins could be forgiven, right? That's that's a good answer. Jesus died so that I can go to heaven when I die. That's another very important answer. Jesus died so I could live an abundant life. Well, that's true too, all right? Those are all true. I want you to notice none of those is where Paul goes in this passage. Where does he go? Why in this passage, why did Christ die? What's the purpose of the death of Christ? Gets a little uncomfortable all of a sudden. It says very clearly, he died so that those who live, that's us, should no longer live for themselves. Wow. You see why I titled the sermon Countercultural? Because that one statement just makes me sound crazy. Because our whole culture says to us, live for yourself. It's all about you. Do what you want to do. 
Do what you consider to be important. Set your goals. Meet your goals. And even our understanding of Christianity and our answer to that question, why did Christ die, fits within those expectations. Many times our answer points to me. Christ died to make my life, both now and for eternity, better. And while that's true, Paul takes it in an entirely different direction, a countercultural direction, and says, Christ died so you would no longer live for yourself, but for him. Now, think about all those passages where, where Paul talks about this. I, you know, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. We know those verses. But what does it mean? Well, Paul, you'll notice I read a little bit more than is in the bulletin, but Paul talks about the outworking of this in the rest of the chapter. He talks about how we, we no longer judge on the basis of outward appearance. He talks about how uh, we're new creations in Christ. The old is gone. The new has started. He talks about we are focused on the ministry of reconciliation. We're ambassadors for Christ. That's what we are. That's what we do. That's why we're here. We also live in the confidence that our sins are gone. And we are righteous in God's eyes because of what Christ has done. In other words, for Paul, the gospel was not just a way to get to heaven. For Paul, the gospel changed his life day by day by day. One died for all, therefore all died. So we've looked at the principle, we've looked at the purpose. Let's go back. I want to circle back around now to the part of the passage that you thought I was going to preach on. The beginning one, the beginning phrase, where it says, for the love of Christ controls us. I think now we're at a point where we can begin to understand what that means. Because the word that's used there, and it's translated differently depending on the version, controls, compels, constrains. It has a lot of different meanings, but the idea, and the one I, I'd like to focus on, is that it has a specific meaning when it comes to criminals. And it has the idea when it's used there as to hold fast as a prisoner. And when I read that, this passage just came alive. Because what Paul is saying is, I don't have a choice. This is not optional. This, this way of life, this countercultural way of life 
is not a choice. I am bound to this like a prisoner is bound. I understand what Christ has done. And once I understand what he has done for me, it changes how I live my life because it binds me to his love. The love of Christ controls us. So why does Paul do the crazy things he does? Why does he preach the things he preaches? Why is it that he, in his life, seems to be such a contrast with the other so-called apostles that were coming to the church at Corinth and were talking about their degrees and about their, their need for more money or whatever that might have been and how impressive they were and how eloquent they were. And Paul was none of those things. Why? Paul says, because... Christ loved me. He loved me enough to die for me. This is why Paul says, you know, so if I'm beside myself, and he doesn't deny that, if I'm beside myself, it's for God. I am willing it I am willing to be crazy for God. This is one of the interesting things about preaching, sort of as a side note. Think about preaching. It is the strangest thing. God calls somebody to stand in front of a group of people and stand beside themselves. Be crazy, be mad as it were and preach the word of God, and God says, I'll take that, and I'll bring people to faith, and I'll grow my people. So Paul says, if I'm beside myself, it's for God. He says, but if I'm in my right mind, it's for you. In other words, I'm doing this for God, and it appears crazy to most people but you should understand that I'm really in my right mind because I'm doing these things for you. I'm doing these things because life, my life, your life is intended to be a ministry to the people of God. It is intended that I become an agent of reconciliation, an ambassador for Christ who speaks through me to my family, to my friends, to my neighbors, even when they think, or maybe especially when they think, I'm crazy. <laughs> His love for us is so compelling as we think about this that we begin to understand our life can never be the same. It has to change. It changes our motivations. It changes our priorities. It changes our goals. 
So, you get the point. We get to the end of the sermon and the question is, so what? <laughs> so what? And, and so my question to you is, what controls your life? By the grace of God, what drives your decision making? What are your goals? In our culture, obviously, we're taught that we ought to do the best to make ourselves the best that we can be. In the movie, Harold Abrams was famous, well-regarded, like the old saying, he who dies with the most toys wins. He died with lots of toys and lots of accolades. But as we look at the two men, Eric Little won. He gave his life in the service of his Savior. And so, in application, I would ask this to you. If we're no longer of this world, if the reason God left us here is so we would live for him, what does it mean in the United States in 2023 to no longer live for ourselves? What does it look like? What does it sound like? What are the priorities that flow out of that? Now, clearly, we can't do that on our own. And, and as I'm speaking to you, and as I'm looking at you, I, I'm seeing the struggle. That's, it's the same struggle that goes on in my mind. But, but, I know. But what does it look like? How does it feel? What kind of choices will we make if that becomes the driving force in our life. What is the love of Christ compelling you to do today? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful Thankful for your word, even when it makes us uncomfortable. <laughs> even when it challenges our thoughts, and maybe especially when it challenges our thoughts and our priorities. We ask that, Father, you would give us grace. Help us to think biblically, counterculturally, for your glory's sake. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.